This is Father Byron Hagen, a priest of the Archdiocese of St. Paul in Minneapolis, offering some reflections inspired by the Deep Down Things podcast with Professor Michael Naughton on the idea of human work in the Catholic social tradition. In Genesis chapter 3, which follows the accounts of divine creation, we read of the primordial tragedy. Adam and Eve were given the tree of life from which they could freely eat. But the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which represents, we might say, the science of unconditioned choice, was forbidden them. In grasping for this tree, our first parents refuse contentment with the divine gift and attempt to take hold of it by an act of power. What came of their grasping we call the fall. And then God said to Adam, Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. Now we shouldn't think that the garden prior to the fall, that state which theologians call prelapsarian, was without human work, far from it. But it was without toil and sweat, for the garden was not the enemy of the gardeners. Adam and Eve served God freely and joyfully as collaborators, and to call that work leisurely is not to call it lackadaisical or without purpose and energy. God calls forth the beasts of the earth to pass one by one before Adam, who gives them names not arbitrarily, but as a work of philosophical insight and creative imagination. The naming of the lower creatures of the material order by the highest, most intelligent creature of that same order is indeed a labor. J.R.R. Tolkien, reflecting the medieval tradition of metaphysical theology, laid down with special clarity by Thomas Aquinas, calls man the sub-creator, creator by contemplative participation in divine power. For as Genesis tells us, the true divinity is a worker god who knows how to get down to business. But he's also a God who takes his rest, and he bids his creatures do so as well. There is, however, an idolatry of work that issues in slavery. In Tolkien's mythic world, Sauron's Mordor and fallen Saruman's Isengard represent the regime of total work, human power subjugated by the machine and fused to the machine. For Tolkien, these were symbols of the Industrial Revolution, which threatened the country life in its marriage to the natural rhythms of the seasons and work and recreation, forcing it into the regimented structure of the labor city, where nature was brought under the command of a strict mechanistic rationality, and so too the laborers. Karl Marx did see clearly that the evil of the Industrial Revolution was not that one large part of society, the workers, were enslaved by an oligarchical minority, the industrialists, but rather that both were enslaved by a system of total work from which both must be set free. For Marx, of course, the path of human freedom was political revolution. The revolution would bring about the return to the garden by the rationalized human power. Marx dreamed of a world in which man would not be alienated from his work by its fetishized reification as market product. The triumph of scientific socialism, as Marx called his ideology, would mean that man could finally live in accordance with his essential freedom 
dedicated to leisure, to non-servile, soul-building art. Marx had been tutored, after all, in a Christian civilization which had taught him that the human nature was universal and made for freedom. But Marx's atheism led him back to that tragic error in the garden. For paradisal existence and cosmic harmony cannot be enjoyed apart from the conscious receptivity of divine being. In rejecting this truth, Marx's revolution only deepened the very alienation it sought to end. Concurrent with the rise of Marxist socialism was the Catholic Church's response to industrial modernity. Now, the Church knew that in a post-Lapsarian world, man cannot escape the suffering that comes from extracting bread from the earth. What Marx called the alienation of man from his labor was an extension of the original alienation of man from God, and God does honor to man's history even in its lapsed condition. But the gospel teaches that although man by himself cannot simply make himself free through work, as the Nazi slogan claimed, in Christ God has entered into the fallen human condition and has transformed the curse at its most profound moment into the blessing of true liberation. In the man Jesus Christ, God had in fact accomplished not only for man, but in man, what man knew he must do and yet could not do for himself. The Christian tradition did in fact labor to incarnate in society the rhythms of work and recreating refreshment, which have helped us all to keep hope alive in this fallen world. The Church still carries on that labor, and despite many setbacks, there are regions of significant progress. And yet we're now experiencing a more insidious danger. For the tools we've devised to save us from servility now threaten to enslave us once again. Culture of total work has again invaded the spaces of rest and leisure. The new technology which allows us to work from anywhere means that we are always at work. But isn't this the condition of the slave? St. John Paul II, in his apostolic letter, Dies Domini, notes that the extension of the Lord's Day into what we call the weekend is, quote, by no means without its positive aspects, unquote, since it recognizes, he says, quote, the need for celebration which is inherent in our humanity, unquote. He goes on to say, though, that, quote, unfortunately when Sunday loses its fundamental meaning and becomes merely part of a weekend, it can happen that people stay locked within a horizon so limited that they can no longer see the heavens. Hence, though ready to celebrate, they are really incapable of doing so." Unquote. Now, the Divine Liturgy of the Mass is the greatest of the achievements of Christian culture. Born as a common meal of thanksgiving to God and celebrated in humble circumstances with simple material, the official public prayer of the Mass flowered into a work of human culture that gave birth to a new civilization. The liturgy became the universal workshop in which every human art and craft developed and flourished into inspired expression. The liturgy and its universal languages of Latin and Greek bound together a fracturing society with a vision of human dignity that brought about a universal renaissance. To interpret the dictum of Joseph Pieper, prayer is the basis of culture. We cannot simply escape in this dispensation the post-Lapsarian world of toil and struggle and death 
and any attempt to do so, whether on the level of the individual seeking a narcotic effect or on the level of the mass social movement to change the world, will only magnify human suffering. If any century of human history has proven this, it should be the century most recently past. But we can live with hope amidst the suffering of this world. Because of the work of Christ, servility is not the definition of the human condition. For there is a rest that is coming, and has already entered the world as a down payment. Those who draw from this spiritual wealth in this dispensation will on the last day come into full inheritance, when the peace of Christ attains total dominion, when, as the book of the Apocalypse proclaims, God will wipe every tear from our eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This has been Father Byron Hagen with the Deep Down Things podcast, which you can find on the web at patreon.com slash deepdownthings. I look forward to being with you again for more reflections. All blessings to you.